Volume 1, Book 2, Chapters 22-32 to 32 of The Life of Apollonius of Tiana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Life of Apollonius of Tiana by Flavius Philostratus. Translated by F. C. Conybeare. Volume 1, Book 2, Chapters 22-32. to 32. Chapter 22 While he was waiting in the temple, and it took a long time for the king to be informed that strangers had arrived, Apollonius said, O Damis, is there such a thing as painting? Why, yes, he answered, if there be any such thing as truth. And what does this art do? It mixes together, replied Damis, all the colours there are, blue with green, and white with black, and red with yellow. And for what reason, said the other, does it mix these? For it isn't merely to get a colour like dyed wax. It is, said Damis, for the sake of imitation, and to get a likeness of a dog, or a horse, or a man, or a ship, or of anything else under the sun. And what is more, you see the sun himself represented, sometimes borne upon a four-horse car, as he is said to be seen here, and sometimes again traversing the heaven with his torch, in case you are depicting the ether and the home of the gods. Then, O Damis, painting is imitation. And what else could it be, said he? For if it did not affect that, it would be voted to be an idol playing with colours. And, said the other, the things which are seen in heaven, whenever the clouds are torn away from one another, I mean the centaurs and stag antelopes, yes, and the wolves too, and the horses, what have you got to say about them? Are we not to regard them as works of imitation? It would seem so, he replied. Then, Damis, God is a painter, and has left his winged chariot upon which he travels as he disposes of affairs human and divine, and he sits down on these occasions to amuse himself by drawing these pictures, as children make figures in the sand. Damis blushed, for he felt that his argument was reduced to such an absurdity. But Apollonius, on his side, had no wish to humiliate him for he was not unfeeling in his refutations of people, and said, But I am sure, Damis, you did not mean that, rather that these figures flit through the heaven not only without meaning, but, so far as providence is concerned, by mere chance, while we, who by nature are prone to imitation, rearrange and create them in these regular figures. We may, he said, rather consider this to be the case, O Apollonius, for it is more probable and a much sounder idea. Then, O Damis, the mimetic art is twofold, and we may regard the one kind as an employment of the hands and mind in producing imitations, and declare that this is painting, whereas the other kind consists in making likenesses with the mind alone. Not twofold, replied Damis, for we ought to regard the former as the more perfect and more complete kind, being anyhow painting, and a faculty of making likenesses with the help both of mind and hand, but we must regard the other kind as a department of that, since its possessor perceives and imitates with the mind without having the delineative faculty, and would never use his hand in depicting its objects. Then, said Apollonius, you mean, Lamus, that the hand is disabled by a blow or by disease? No, he answered, but it is disabled, because it has never handled pencil nor any instrument or collar, and has never learned to draw. Then, said the other, 
we are both of us, Damis, agreed, that man owes his mimetic faculty to nature, but his power of painting to art, and the same would appear to be true of plastic art. But methinks you would not confine painting itself to the mere use of colours, for a single colour was often found sufficient for this purpose by our older painters, and as the art advanced it employed four, and later yet more. But we must also concede the name of painting to an outline drawn without any colour at all, and composed merely of shadow and light. For in such designs we see a resemblance, we see form and expression, and modesty and bravery, although they are altogether devoid of colour, and neither blood is represented nor the colour of a man's hair or beard. Nevertheless these compositions in monochrome are likenesses of people, either tawny or white, and even if we drew one of these Indians with a white pencil, yet he would seem black, for there would be his flat nose, and his stiff curling locks, and prominent jaws, and a certain gleam about his eyes, to give a black look to the picture, and depict an Indian to the eyes of all those who have intelligence. And for this reason, I should say, that those who look at works of painting and drawing require a mimetic faculty, for no one could appreciate or admire a picture of a horse or of a bull, unless he had formed an idea of the creature represented. Nor again could one admire a picture of Ajax by the painter Timomachus, which represents him in a state of madness, unless one had conceived in one's mind first an idea or notion of Ajax, and had entertained the probability that after killing the flocks in Troy he would sit down exhausted and meditate suicide. But these elaborate works of Porus we cannot, Damis, regard as works of brass founding alone, for they resemble regular pictures, nor as works of painting alone, for they are cast in brass. So let us regard them as the chef d'oeuvre of a man who is both painter and brass founder at once, and as similar to the work of Hephaestus upon the shield of Achilles, as revealed in Homer. For there are crowded together in that work, too, men slaying and slain, and you would say that the earth was stained with gore, though it is made of brass. Chapter 23 while the sage was engaged in this conversation, messengers and an interpreter presented themselves from the king, to say that the king would make him his guest for three days, because the laws did not allow of strangers residing in the city for a longer time, and accordingly they conducted him into the palace. I have already described the way in which the city is walled, but they say that it was divided up into narrow streets in the same irregular manner as is Athens, that the houses were built in such a way that if you look at them from outside they had only one story, while if you went into one of them you at once found subterranean chambers extending as far below the level of the earth as did the chambers above. CHAPTER Twenty Four, And they say that they saw a temple of the sun in which was kept a sacred elephant called Ajax, and there were images of Alexander made of gold, and others of Porus, though the latter were of black bronze but on the walls of the temple there were red stones, and gold glittered underneath, and gave off a sheen as bright as sunlight. But the statue was compacted of pearls, arranged in the symbolic manner affected by all barbarians in their shrines. CHAPTER Twenty Five, And in the palace they say that they saw no magnificent chambers, nor any bodyguards or sentinels, but, as is the case in the houses of the upper class, a few servants and only three or four of them who required to converse with the king. And they say that they admired this arrangement more than they did the pompous splendour of Babylon, 
and their esteem was enhanced when they went within, for the men's chambers and the porticoes and the whole of the vestibule were in a very chaste style. Chapter 26 So the Indian was regarded by Apollonius as a philosopher, and, addressing him through an interpreter, he said, I am delighted, O king, to find you living like a philosopher. And I, said the other, am over-delighted that you should think of me thus. And, said Apollonius, is this customary among you, or was it you yourself established your government on so modest a scale? Our customs, said the king, are dictated by moderation, and I am still more moderate in my carrying them out, and though I have more than other men, yet I want little, for I regard most things as belonging to my own friends. Blessed are you, then, in your treasure, said Apollonius, if you rate your friends more highly than gold and silver, for out of them grows up for you a harvest of blessings. Nay, more, said the king, I share my wealth also with my enemies, for the barbarians who live on the border of this country were perpetually quarrelling with us and making raids into my territories, but I keep them quiet and control them with money, so that my country is patrolled by them, and instead of their invading my dominions, they themselves keep off the barbarians that are on the other side of the frontier, and are difficult people to deal with. And when Apollonius asked him whether Porus also had paid them subsidy, he replied, Porus was as fond of war as I am of peace. By expressing such sentiments he quite disarmed Apollonius, who was so captivated by him, at once, when he was rebuking Euphrates for his want of philosophic self-respect, he remarked, Nay, let us rather reverence Phraeotus the Indian, for this was the name of the Indian. And when a satrap, for the great esteem in which he held the monarch, desired to bind on his brow a golden mitre adorned with various stones, he said, Even if I were an admirer of such things, I should decline them now, and cast them off my head, because I have met with Apollonius and how can I now adorn myself with ornaments which I never before deigned to bind upon my head without ignoring my guest and forgetting myself? Apollonius also asked him about his diet, and he replied, I drink just as much wine as I pour out in libation to the sun, and whatever I take in the chase I give to others to eat, for I am satisfied with the exercise I get. But my own meal consists of vegetables and of the pith and fruit of date-palms, and of all that a well-watered garden yields in the way of fruit. And a great deal of fruit is yielded to me by the trees which I cultivate with these hands. When Apollonius heard this, he was more than gratified, and kept glancing at Damis. Chapter 27 And when they had conversed a good deal about which road to take to the Brahmans, the king ordered the guide from Babylon to be well entertained, as it was customary so to treat those who came from Babylon, and the guide from the satrap to be dismissed after being given provisions for the road. Then he took Apollonius by the hand, and, having bidden the interpreter to depart, he said, You will then, I hope, choose me for your boon companion. And he asked the question of him in the Greek tongue. But Apollonius was surprised, and remarked, Why did you not converse with me thus from the beginning? I was afraid, said the king, of seeming presumptuous, for I do not know myself, not to mention the fact that I am a barbarian by decree of fate. But you have won my affection, and as soon as I saw that you take pleasure in my society, I was unable to keep myself concealed. But that I am quite competent in the Greek speech I will show you amply. 
Why then, said Apollonius, did you not invite me to the banquet instead of begging me to invite you? Because, he replied, I regard you as my superior, for wisdom has more of the kingly quality about it. And with that he led him and his companions to where he was accustomed to bathe. And the bathing place was a garden, a state in length, in the middle of which was dug out a pool, which was fed by fountains of water, cold and drinkable, and on each side there were exercising places, in which he was accustomed to practice himself after the manner of the Greeks, with javelin and quad-throwing. For physically he was very robust, both because he was still young, for he was only seven-and-twenty years old, and because he trained himself in this way. And when he had had enough exercise, he would jump into the water and exercise himself in swimming. But when they had taken their bath, they proceeded into the banqueting chamber with wreaths upon their heads, for this is the custom of the Indians whenever they drink wine in the palace. CHAPTER Twenty Eight. And I must on no account omit to describe the arrangement of the banquet, since this has been clearly described and recorded by Damis. The king then banquets, lying upon a mattress, and as many as five of his nearest relations with him, but all the rest join in the feast, setting upon chairs. And the table resembles an altar in that it is built up to the height of a man's knee in the middle of the chamber, and allows room for thirty to dispose themselves around it, like a choir in a close circle. Upon it laurels are strewn, and other branches, which are similar to the myrtle, but yield to the Indians their balm. Upon it are served up fish and birds, and there are also laid upon it whole lions and gazelles and swine and the loins of tigers, for they decline to eat the other parts of this animal, because they say that, as soon as it is born, it lifts up its front paws to the rising sun. Next, the master of ceremonies rises and goes to the table, and he selects some of the vines for himself, and cuts off other portions, and then he goes back to his own chair and eats his full, constantly munching bread with it. And when they have all had enough, goblets of silver and gold are brought in, each of which is enough for ten banqueters, and out of these they drink, stooping down like animals that are being watered. And while they are drinking, they have brought in performers of various dangerous feats, requiring elaborate preparation. For a boy, like a theatrical dancer, would throw a light somersault, and at the same moment a javelin was aimed at him, up in the air, and when he was a long way from the ground, the boy would, by a tumbler's leap, raise himself above the weapon, and if he missed his leap, he was sure to be hit. For the archer, before he let fly, went round the banqueters, and showed them the point of his weapon, and let them try the missile themselves. And another man would take a sling, and aiming within a hair's breadth, would shoot at his own son, and pick out his figure with the missiles as he stood erect against the hoarding. Such are their forms of entertainment in their banquets, and they aim straight, even when they are drunk. CHAPTER Twenty Nine. Well, the companions of Damis marvelled at the accuracy of their eye, and were surprised at the exactness with which they aimed their weapons. But Apollonius, who was eating beside the king, cheek by jowl, was less interested in these feats, and said to the king, "'Tell me, O king, how you acquired such a command of the Greek tongue, and whence you derived all your philosophical attainments in this place. For I don't imagine that you owe them to the teachers, for it is not likely that there are in India any who could teach it.' The king then smiled, and said, "'Our ancestors used to ask questions of mariners who sailed to their coast, to see whether they were pirates, 
so widespread did they consider that calling to be, in spite of its cruelty. But, so far as I can make out, you Greeks ask your visitors whether they are not philosophers. So convinced are you that everyone you meet with must needs possess this divinest of human attainments, and that philosophy and piracy are one and the same thing among you, I am well aware, for they say that a man like yourself is not to be found anywhere, but that most of your philosophers are like people who have despoiled another man of his garment, and then have dressed themselves up in it, although it does not fit them, and proceed to strut about trailing another man's garment. Nay, by Zeus, just as robbers live in luxury, well knowing that they lie at the mercy of justice, so are they, it is said, addicted to gluttony and riotous living and to delicate apparel. And the reason is this. You have laws, I believe, to the effect that if a man is caught forging money, he must die, and the same if any one illegally enrolls a boy upon the register and all the rest of it, I know not what. But people who utter a counterfeit philosophy or corrupt her are not, I believe, restrained among you by any law, nor is any authority set to suppress them. Chapter 30 Now, among us, few engage in philosophy, and they are sifted and tried as follows. A young man, so soon as he reaches the age of eighteen, and this, I think, is accounted the time of full age among you also, must pass across the river her faces to the man whom you are set upon visiting, after first making a public statement that he will become a philosopher, so that those who wish to may exclude him if he does not approach the study in a state of purity. And by pure I mean, firstly, in respect of his parentage, that no disgraceful deed can be proved against either his father or his mother. Next, that their parents in turn, up to the third generation, are equally pure, that there was no ruffian among them, no debauchee, nor any unjust usurer. And when no scar or reproach can be proved against them, nor any other stain whatever, then it is time narrowly to inspect the young man himself, and test him, to see firstly whether he has a good memory, and secondly whether he is modest and reserved in disposition, and does not merely pretend to be so, whether he is addicted to drink, or greedy, or a quack, or a buffoon, or rash, or abusive, to see whether he is obedient to his father, to his mother, to his teachers, to his schoolmasters, and, above all, if he makes no bad use of his personal attractions. The particulars, then, of his parents and of their progenitors are gathered from witnesses and from the public archives. For whenever an Indian dies, there visits his house a particular authority charged by the law to make a record of him, and of how he lived. And if this officer lies or allows himself to be deceived, he is condemned by the law and forbidden ever to hold another office, on the ground that he has counterfeited a man's life but the particulars of the youth themselves are duly learned by inspection of them. For in many cases a man's eyes reveal the secrets of his character, and in many cases there is material for forming a judgment and appraising his value in his eyebrows and cheeks. For from these features the dispositions of people can be detected by wise and scientific men, as images are seen in the looking-glass. For seeing that philosophy is highly esteemed in this country, and it is held in honour by the Indians, it is absolutely necessary that those who take to it should be tested and subjected to a thousand modes of proof. That then we proceed thus in the case of teachers, and put their philosophical aptitude to a test, I have clearly explained. N now I will relate to you my own history. Chapter 31 
My grandfather was king, and had the same name as myself, but my father was a private person, for he was left quite young, and two of his relations were appointed his guardians, in accordance with the laws of the Indians. But they did not carry on the king's government honestly on his behalf. No, by the son, but so unfairly that their subjects found their regime oppressive, and the government fell into bad repute. A conspiracy, then, was formed against them by some of the magnates, who attacked them at a festival, and slew them when they were sacrificing to the river Indus. The conspirators then seized upon the reins of government, and held the state together. Now my father's kinsmen entertained apprehensions for him, because he was not yet sixteen years of age, so they sent him across the Hyphasis to the king there, and he has more subjects than I have, and his country is much more fertile than this one. This monarch wished to adopt him, but this my father declined, on the ground that he would not struggle with fate that had robbed him of his kingdom. But he besought him to allow him to take his way to the sages, and become a philosopher, for he said that this would make it easier for him to bear the reverses of his house. The king, however, being anxious to restore him to his father's kingdom, my father said, If you see that I am become a genuine philosopher, then restore me, but if not, let me remain as I am. The king accordingly went in person to the sages, and said that he would lie under great obligation to them, if they would take care of a youth who already showed such nobility of character, and they, discerning in him something out of the common run, were delighted to impart to him their wisdom, and were glad to educate him when they saw how addicted he was to learning. Now, seven years afterwards, the king fell sick, and at the very moment when he was dying, he sent for my father, and appointed him co-heir in the government with his own son, and promised his daughter in marriage to him, as she was already of marriageable age. And my father, since he saw that the king's son was the victim of flatterers, and of wine, and of such like vices, and was also full of suspicions of himself, said to him, Do you keep all this, and enjoy the whole empire as your own? For it is ridiculous that one who could not even keep the kingdom which belonged to him should presume to meddle with one which does not. But give me your sister, for this is all I want of yours. So, having obtained her in marriage, he lived hard by the sages in seven fertile villages, which the king bestowed upon his sister as her pin-money. I, then, am the issue of this marriage, and my father, after teaching me Greek, brought me to the sages at an age somewhat too early, perhaps, for I was only twelve at the time, but they brought me up like their own son." For any that they admit, knowing the Greek tongue, they are especially fond of, because they consider that, in virtue of the similarity of his disposition, he already belongs to themselves. CHAPTER Thirty-two. And when my parents had died, which they did almost together, the sages bade me repair to the villages and look after my own affairs, for I was now nineteen years of age. But, alas, my good uncle had already taken away the villages, and didn't even leave me the few acres my father had acquired, for he said that the whole of them belonged to his kingdom, and that I should get more than I deserved if he spared my life. I accordingly raised a subscription among my mother's freedmen, and kept four retainers. And one day, when I was reading the play called The Children of Hercules, a man presented himself from my own country, bringing a letter from a person devoted to my father, who urged me to cross the river Hydrotis, and confer with him about my present kingdom, for he said there was a good prospect of my recovering it, if I wavered not. I cannot but think that some god set me on reading this drama at that moment, 
and I followed the omen, and having crossed the river, I learned that one of the usurpers of the kingdom was dead, and that the other was besieged in this very palace. Accordingly, I hurried forward, and proclaimed to the inhabitants of the villages through which I passed that I was the son of so-and-so, naming my father, and that I was come to take possession of my own kingdom. But they received me with open arms, and escorted me, recognizing my resemblance to my grandfather, and they had daggers and weapons, and our numbers increased from day to day. And when I approached the gates, the population received me with such enthusiasm that they snatched up torches off the altar of the sun, and came before the gates, and escorted me hither with many hymns in praise of my father and grandfather. But the drone that was within they walled up, although I protested against his being put to such a death. End of Volume 1, Book 2, Chapters 22-32